Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the editors of Second Atlas of Breeding Birds in Pennsylvania, Andrew Wilson, Daniel Browning, and Robert Mulvihill. Welcome to PA Books. We are joined today by Daniel Brawning. He is an ornithologist with the Pennsylvania State Game Commission. Robert Mulvihill, conservation outreach manager at the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. And Andrew Wilson, he's visiting professor, uh, assistant professor of environmental studies at Gettysburg College. And they are the authors or editors of this book, Breeding Birds in Pennsylvania, the second atlas of breeding birds in Pennsylvania. So, uh, well, uh, Andrew, let me start with you. Uh, mm -hmm. Two things jump out at me from the title. One is breeding birds in Pennsylvania. What is a breeding bird as opposed to any other kind of bird? And this is the second atlas of Pennsylvania. First of all, what's a breeding bird? Uh, well, this is a bird that nests within the state. So it's a bird that it might spend the whole year here or it might just migrate here, it might spend the winter in South America and come back to Pennsylvania to breed. So, so these are birds that actually nest in the state. So the focus here is on the bird breeding season, which is the spring and the summer months. So it's all the birds that call Pennsylvania home at that time of year, essentially. Can you give an example of birds people would be familiar with that are not breeding birds in Pennsylvania? Um, well, we have um, lots, of, lots of the ducks that the, the various hunters in Pennsylvania like to hunt are birds that nest further north. They nest in Canada. Um, you know, Montana, places like that, and they, they migrate through Pennsylvania. But a lot of them don't actually nest here at all. They're, they're, they're kind of migrants or winter visitors. Yeah, we call them passage migrants. Yep. So they just, they're just passing through, but then the ones that, that come and stay, or that were here all along, Citizens. are the, are the breeders. <laughs> yeah, yep. right. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Daniel, let me get you to answer the other part of the question. Why is this a second atlas? Well, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity, because the first atlas was published 20 years ago, and it did basically the same thing with a network of volunteers documenting the nesting birds, and I was the editor and project coordinator of that first time through. Uh, what has changed since the first one to the second one? Well, a lot of things have changed from the bird standpoint, and we'll talk quite a bit about that. Um, we also expanded the scope of the second atlas under Bob Mulvihill's coordination and, and incorporated an abundance component. Um, a density map on top of the distribution. We'll get into some of the details of what that means. It, it's, much, it's a much expanded effort, uh, and it resulted in a much bigger book, too. Hmm. When you work on a project like this, what is involved in bringing it together? There's a great deal involved. There was, um, there was a whole, uh, I'd say, a whole year of pre-planning that went into this, uh, and in fact, before that, probably some informal discussions with some of the, uh, the bird uh, groups, the bird clubs in the state, but an actual planning grant, I think, to Penn State University, which helped to um, basically identify some of the challenges 
um, of the second atlas and what were some of the things we might want to do differently compared to the first. Um, and there were committees, uh, advisory committees that uh, met uh, with some frequency. Uh, to try to get, just get a handle on what our what the scope of the project was going to be, and to identify some some strategies for ensuring that it could be completed successfully. So after that year of planning, uh, it involved identifying some of the key um, organizers, and those at, you know I was hired as a project coordinator under with Dan Browning as the project director. I had been a, what's called a regional coordinator for Dan when he did the first atlas. A colleague of mine and I had been a regional coordinator, which means we had had a section of the state. In that, in that case, it was counties, a few counties in southwestern Pennsylvania. We tried to identify a core of volunteers who could uh, collect the data from those counties and then report back to the main project. Uh, so one of the first things to do was to identify a structure for um, organizing the atlas. We chose a, a different structure. Instead of going on county lines, we chose the, the grid, uh, a, a grid of the Delorme Atlas of Pennsylvania. Um, so that the Delorme Atlas essentially puts on one page multiple uh, equivalents of the USGS seven and a half minute topo series map. And so in one, one book, you can, you can sort of see the whole state. In the first atlas, we were unfolding big, uh, big topo maps and each map each topo map is uh, six blocks, uh, the six survey blocks. So the what's second a, what's atlas. A block? You refer to yeah, blocks the second a lot. atlas. It's, it's a grid. We just you can you can divide the state up into four quarters and, and just try to get a list for you know northeast, you know northwest, southeast, southwest. But we went obviously finer than that. And so a, an atlas block is one sixth of a USGS seven and a half minute topo map, which equates to about uh, about ten square miles. Um, and so the, you know, one of the things we did with the second atlas was to decide, well, how big is a region going to be? And, and then can we identify someone who can coordinate, uh, organize the activities in that region? So we went from a slightly different model than the first atlas. The first atlas being, again, county-based. The second atlas was sort of squared up. So uh, all of the regions were a rectangle, essentially one page out of the Delorme atlas, which was 84 survey blocks. And we found a, a qualified um, volunteer birder in the state, uh, familiar with the, the territory uh, that he, would, he or she would be in charge of, and also familiar with the, the resources in terms of volunteers and uh, with a commitment to go out and help make this a success. So if someone's a volunteer, what's their job? Well, their, their job primarily is to record the birds that they find nesting within that, that area that Bob des described as a block. And that's what really makes this book special in my mind is that it reflects the results of a project, um, an extensive project involving thousands, you know, at least 2,000 volunteers. And all that effort rolled up together is then summarized in, in the product that you have as a book. So it's both a project which tells us tremendously about the distribution of birds that was involved, lots of individuals contributing. And, and now we can summarize those results. If you're looking for nests, you have to go at a certain time of year? Absolutely. So a narrow there, window. There's a lot of constraints. Each, each yep. species has its own distinctive uh, requirements. Yeah. We had what are called safe dates. It's basically a period of time between which uh, we believe that bird, uh, a bird of that species, could be considered a breeding bird, even if you don't find the actual nest. So How would you find the volunteers? How many were in, in it? Well, as Dan said, it was about 2,000, maybe a little over 2,000, um, and about 70 regional coordinators. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they were key. Uh, and we had the entire state was divided up into 4,937 blocks. So, essentially, we needed to get a full list of the breeding birds. The goal was a, f a complete list of the breeding birds from every one of those 4,937 blocks. And then by filling in the blocks where the species was found, uh, and leaving empty the ones where it wasn't, you would come up with a map. You can open the book to any page and you'll see a map where it's not solid 
a, a solid color for the state of Pennsylvania. There are, there are individual blocks that you can see where the bird was detected. Uh, we went to bird clubs. The regional coordinators were familiar with the local bird club resources, would perhaps give a, a talk, an informal talk, or speak up at a bird club meeting. We had a newsletter that we uh, sent out to bird clubs, to libraries around the state. We publicized it as much as possible. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to not just restrict the volunteer base to the bird club members, which was, an, of course, they were critically important to the success of the project, but to invite new people who perhaps had not become part of the social fabric of, of, of the birding community in Pennsylvania to join that community through this project. And we think we had some success with doing that as well. Andrew, what would you learn by doing this project? Um, well, I'm clearly not from Pennsylvania. I'm from a little bit further east. So I actually, <laughs> um, it was quite fortuitous for me. I came to Penn State for grad school right around about the time that the field work was starting this project in 2004. Um, so I missed out on all the, um, the couple of years before that when, when the thing was ramping up, but I got here just in time for the start of the field work. So what I got from it was I traveled across Pennsylvania looking for birds, counting birds for, for five years, which was uh, an amazing way to get to know the state. I actually went to about 4,000 different locations across Pennsylvania over those, over those years. So, I mean, that's, it's just a beautiful state. I, I got to learn about the birds and, uh, you know, that was, that was a tremendous experience for me is as a, a newcomer. Is there a dramatic yeah. difference between the birds you find in a, in a city or a suburb or a farm or a mountain? Oh yeah, I mean dramatically. Uh, a lot of the species distributions that we highlight in this book, um, you can see some strong patterns. You know, you'll see blocks of you know a, a certain species will be an urban bird, and you'll you'll be able to pick out all the cities. You know, you'll be able to pick out the towns, or you'll be able to pick out the, the patches of large forests or the patches of extensive farmland, or maybe a handful of, of large wetlands. So those kinds of patterns really jump out. Yeah, that's one of the first things that strikes you when you look at these maps. It's, oh wow, I you know, can really see some of the land use, some of the characteristic land use of PA. When you were doing your research, how often did you have a eureka moment? Um, almost every day. For me personally, because um, I was, um, the, the state was kind of new to me, a lot of the birds were, were kind of new to me. So I was uh, learning a lot about just about the birds, bird behavior, you know, so Virtually every day, I, I was just learning, a, a, you know, a, a lot about individual species. We have around about 200 species, that, over 200 species actually, that were recorded by this project. Around about 190 of them nest in the state. So that's a lot of birds to to learn about and get to know about. One of the things, in, in, you know, Andy was part of a, a small a, a paid uh, field uh, crew. Uh, that was um, there. The, this was a project within a project. We we really wanted to. Um, get some information about the abundance of nesting birds as well as the distribution as I think Dan mentioned earlier and to get at that really requires a tremendous amount of, of um, quantitative uh, data and it requires a, a bit more um, expertise in bird identification and the techniques of counting birds um, than, than we might get from, uh, from, from, a, from a volunteer. Certainly many volunteers would be capable, but to get the kind of coverage we needed, we hired people like, like Andy to, to visit um, uh, randomly uh, dropped points in every one of these survey blocks and do a very um, a rigorous protocol of counting birds according to a very strict uh, method that enabled a Andy uh, subsequently with all of those data to 
uh, calculate some uh, estimates of true population uh, abundance for these species statewide, as well as where their centers of abundance were. So it was really, so, so Andy and a crew of, I guess, t in total, maybe it was about, about 15? It, it was 22 of us, I okay. believe. So we had um, sort of um, between five and 10 of us each year. Yeah. And of course, we were all trained, so we had a, a a week or two weeks of training each year to make sure we were doing things in you know, the standardized fashion. protocols. So, And then the third map that's presented in many of those pages is density the density map, density. and that's the specific result of that, that point count effort. So right. a more colorful map that shows um, the reds, the, the oranges, the yellows. Red and yellow as, a, as the abundance. We can go, well, I think of it as a third dimension. You know, the yep. distribution is sort of east and west. Now we can say how common they were within any one location. A real ad addition to this effort. And let, let me just uh, build on what Andy said about the Eureka moment. He said he had one every day because he, he was visiting a new place mm -hmm. where the birds were unknown until he got there and observed them. And I think uh, the majority of people who assisted as volunteers would tell you the same thing, that they, they had a wonderful moment of discovery in their own backyard virtually every day that they went out for the Atlas because the Atlas provided a wonderful excuse for people who love birds to spend just a little more time during those five or six mm -hmm. years uh, devoting that time to get out and, and explore the park down the street, uh, you know, maybe without the care of, of worrying about whether the dog was, you know, on the mm -hmm. leash or whatever. But I mean, they were, they were focused on the birds. And, and I know Dan himself uh, mm -hmm. has told many stories about discovering, I didn't know I had breeding this or breeding that right Right down, down the, the road, street down the road from my home. Um, uh, and that's one really of the beauty of atlases. You yeah. know, there is the structure of it enables any bird watcher at, at actually any level of knowledge to just go out there and have those discoveries. Yeah. We and love discovering things. So people were true explorers. They were right. exploring Pennsylvania for birds. And while, and generally speaking, we know what birds breed in Pennsylvania, the level of detail in this atlas, mm. looking at see what birds are within a 10 square mile block, um, that's that there are discoveries being made every single day that people were out. Now, being as how Accuracy is very important in a book like this. I, one, one bird caught my eye, and that's the trumpeter swan, which where there was one probable sighting of in western Pennsylvania right along the Ohio border. Right. Right. Now, how can you be sure if you're dealing with volunteers that they're... Yeah correct with yeah. that one. And that, the probable refers to the breeding um, evidence, not the identification. The identification is absolutely certain. In this case, the, the, the behavior, the, what was actually observed, um, uh, denotes probable breeding. It didn't confirm it. Your but, volunteers uh, but, are savvy enough to. Oh, well, tell again, them? Uh, we had a handbook that uh, that tr trained them in what these different behaviors are to be that you should be looking for, how to apply them to judging the status, the breeding status of the bird, and so forth. But those those birds were well known. They were seen by many many people. But I will say that for any unusual sighting, there was a. a uh, the regional coordinator, that person who I told you organized volunteers, that person would follow up on any, if he got a report of an unusual species, all volunteers were, um, there were species that were uh, in bold face in our handbook. And if you got one of those species, you were to contact your regional coordinator right away, they would then try to get to that spot and verify it. And even with all of that care, uh, at the very end of the study, any, any records that were of, of that unusual nature were reviewed by a committee extensively and all kinds of extra uh, follow-up was done to ensure that we only included uh, factual data. Where'd you get the photographs? That was obtained um, by a photo editor. You'll see Jeff Malosh's name listed here um, as well as many contributors, but, but through Bob initially making contacts with known photographers and then Jeff followed up pulling together basically soliciting from the birding community good photographs. 
And the, the, the wonderful thing is most of those photographs are actually taken in Pennsylvania. So we really wanted to make sure they, they were actually individual Pennsylvania birds in their habitat in Pennsylvania. I noticed uh, a lot of the pictures are of baby birds mm -hmm. or of birds being mm -hmm. fed. Yep. Was that intentional? Uh, yep. It was yeah. intentional. Yeah. Yep. Sure, you can get a, a picture of a bird that's sort of like out of a field guide, just the classic side view portrait of a bird. But this is a breeding bird atlas after all, so we wanted as many pictures as we could that actually showed a breeding behavior. And so for instance, all the birds, these had to all be birds uh, that were clearly not out of season. We would accept a picture of a bird that was clearly in the autumn or the winter if it, that wasn't the breeding season for the species. Andrew, could you tell by the nest what type of bird it was? Um, some species have very distinctive nests, yeah. I mean, that's an extreme case, for example, a bald eagle builds this massive mm -hmm. nest that's the size of this table, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, some bird watchers are real experts at finding nests and uh, identifying the nest, looking for all the, the various signs of birds as well. Some people less so. Some people identify birds more by um, their, their songs or you know their their appearance. So different bird watchers have got different levels of expertise. But usually, it's it's usually a straightforward um, detective um, story trying to find you know the the, the, the what the nest belongs to, you know, you wait around, you wait for the adult bird to return, you know, so it's, it's usually a little bit of detective work, work gets you there. Now, in, in your book, you have a lot of comparisons between the first atlas and the second atlas sure. as to the number of birds that were in one and mm -hmm. another. Can you talk about some of the birds that are just doing great, that their numbers are up dramatically? <laughs> you mentioned yeah. the bald eagle, that's one of yep. them. Yeah, that's a big yeah. one. Yep, that's well, a that's a tenfold increase uh, yep. in the number of confirmed breeding birds. Yep. So so um, there's a lot of real real success stories. You know, there's a lot of birds that have really bounced back. Some of these birds were um, driven almost to um, extinction within Pennsylvania. Bald eagles one, um, ospreys another. The the great blue heron um, is another. Um, there's a whole range of them. The raven, really cool, large crow that some people might be seeing now that. They, they, they didn't see when they were children, you know, even in some suburban uh, parts of southeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. I remember really cool bird. maybe 20 years ago, it was very rare to see a wild turkey, and now they seem oh, to be all wow. over the place. What would cause wild turkeys to suddenly be much more plentiful? That's a damn question. Well, it is. You're with the Game Commission. Right? Exactly, so with the Game Commission, and the Game Commission was a big sponsor, both financially and, and administratively, of the book. Um, and turkeys are one of those great success stories, and it has a long history of either careful management or even before that, you know, over-exploitation at one time until Game Commission managed seasons. But we've been very careful to both, um, you know, to manage the hunting season so that they can expand, but there was also trap and transfer efforts 30 to 40 years ago where they, we moved turkeys around the state to try to expand the population. So in a sense, you're seeing the fruit of that as well as good careful law enforcement so that they're not shot out of season and that kind of thing. Who have you done that for? That where you essentially it's like reintroducing um, uh, elk to, to well, it, reintroducing elk is a non-bird example, and is exactly right. Um, there have been a few successful reintroductions, and and we've mentioned the bald eagle, peregrine falcon, where a species was gone or nearly gone, and it was specifically brought back. And wild turkey, they found the best way to do that was to move individuals from one place to another. But those those are relatively unusual situations. Um, game, so game birds in general, we see a great expansion of wild turkey. On the flip side, rough grouse, our state bird, is not doing as well. It's retracting its range, and we're losing ground for reasons that aren't 100% clear. Are there birds you can point to who you can say, well, this one is diminishing or increasing because of climate change, or this one because of humans' action, or, or this one because of predators? Examples? 
Um, climate change is kind of a tricky one. That was something we were very, when we were um, organizing this project and doing the field work, we were very keen to see if we could pick up any signals of climate change because that has been seen in lots of parts of the world, especially in Europe, not only among birds, but among butterflies and, and plants as well. So we were very keen to see if we could pick up those signals. And uh, it turns out the story is actually quite complex. Some species that are doing exactly what we would have predicted beforehand, they're, they're spreading further north in Pennsylvania, which you would expect milder winters you know they're able to survive the winters more populations increase so some people some species are following that pattern and then others are doing the opposite of what we would have predicted so it's kind of a complex story um, and with all of these things I mean the environment is a complex thing there's lots of different things that are um, operating at the same time so just teasing out one thing sometimes is really problematic but there are some uh, various different species where there, you know, there's very strong evidence, very strong signals of certain uh, environmental changes. By and large, you're going to see bird populations respond to the availability of their habitat and the condition of their habitat. So, you know, the recovery of Pennsylvania forest, which is uh, over a hundred-year time frame, you know, we see that in the continued expanse of many forest-related birds. It's a really good story. It's a good news story. Flip side of that is the changes in grassland habitats and agricultural settings where those activities are tend, to, tend to be more intensive. They tend not to be as good for birds, so we generally see declines in the birds that are associated with, with grassland or agricultural settings. And one thing to, to point out is that uh, those changes certainly were a, a big impetus for this study. Mm -hmm. Let's see how bird distributions have changed, and, and can we at least conjecture what might be contributing to that change? Is it anthropogenic? Is it human-caused? Or is it some natural population expansion that just happened to coincide with the, well, with the time frame for the atlas? Um, the data that are presented in the book are somewhat general. They're for a general audience. Who's, uh, anyone who's interested in Pennsylvania birds would love to look at this atlas, not just for the pretty bird picture, but for the maps, because the scale is such that they can look pretty close to where they live or where they go and mm -hmm. get an idea of what was seen and what wasn't seen and, and how things have changed. And there's a really nice descriptive text written for every species. And um, um, we, we tried to identify someone, not always in the state of Pennsylvania, <coughs> often, but not always, who was really well qualified to, to speak to the re results we got for that species. So, um, uh, so we, we got a nice range of, of, of expert authors who looked at all of the data, even more data than are presented in the final book, uh, so, so that they could sort of tell the story of what, what we think we learned about that species as a result of doing the second atlas. And even with that, there's still this huge amount of data that are not actually represented in the book that will uh, form the basis for some of the kinds of studies that I think you're, you're asking about, where someone can go in and do a, um, a, a quantitative analysis of the effect of change in um, uh, land use uh, versus uh, the range of a bird, can do this across actually could do it across several states. Mm -hmm. There are atlases completed recently in New York and Ohio and one that will be done fairly soon in West Virginia so we can begin now to sort of put these together like a jigsaw puzzle and look for things that uh, that, that cut across political boundaries. Regionally, yeah. Well one of the things that happened in Pennsylvania a lot between the publishing of the mm -hmm. first atlas and the second atlas is suburban sprawl mm -hmm. in a lot of areas mm -hmm. of the yep. state. What, uh, what birds are is suburban sprawl great for and which ones do, uh, get chased away by suburban sprawl? Well I mean you're Regular common garden birds, uh, you know, cardinals, robins, um, 
house sparrows, stongs, any of those birds that people see on their bird table, they're generally going to benefit. Not all of them, but most of them will, will bird benefit. Bird table is bird feeder. Bird, bird feeder, Britain, yeah, bird said. platform feeder. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a range of species that you would expect to, to, to see, you know, follow the human settlement out. And then the converse of that, in Pennsylvania, a lot of the development, especially in the southeast, has been at the expense of farmland and grassland. So we actually do pick up in this book some really interesting patterns, especially around the sort of Philadelphia metro area, mm. where some of the areas, the, 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 the farmland birds that a lot of rural folk are familiar with, the Eastern Meadowlark, beautiful songbird, beautiful song, a lot of rural Pennsylvania really familiar with that bird. And that's been losing out. It's been, you know, it's, it's really contracted away from, from that area where there's been a lot of sprawl in the southeast. Just, just to ahead. point out, on, on page 447, the map for Eastern Meadowlark, and what we wanted to be able to show was, uh, again, an overlay of the first atlas results and the second atlas results in a way that would allow you to discern if there's been a change. And we use a sort of a simple, uh, a simple maxim. It, you know, yellow and blue makes green. So if, the, if, if, if registrations of the species were uh, done in the first atlas, we, we filled them with yellow. If they were found in the second atlas, we put them in blue. And therefore, if it was in both atlases, it would have to be green. So if you look at that eastern meadowlark map that Andy was talking about, in the southeast, a big bunch of yellow yeah. picks out. And that's, so that, at a, you know, at a glance, you can see this is a loss of the species range within that part of Pennsylvania. And you can flip, you know, from book to book. If you look at wild turkey, mm -hmm. you're going to see a very different picture. You're going to see a lot of blue, which means gains. You know, we've had places where it wasn't in the first atlas. We've found it in the second atlas. Just a quick question. Uh, you said something that spurred it. Is, uh, are uh, bird feeders a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, well, there's a lot of debate about that, actually, you know, because um, it gives certain birds a competitive advantage against um, other birds. So a lot of the birds that, that um, feed at feeders are residents. They're here all year round, and their populations are probably doing really well because we're putting out all of this extra food. Uh, but that might mean that they're out-competing the, the migrant birds that are coming back from spend the winter in South America, come back to North America, and all of these other birds that are around for the winter uh, maybe taking more of the nest site. So some people actually um, think it might be creating problems for some species, but generally speaking, I think most people agree it has lots of positive sides as well, especially in terms of pu public relations, getting people excited about birds. So it's great I think for the on squirrels. Balance, <laughs> yeah, and the squirrels, the squirrels, the squirrels, squirrels love it. Yeah. Bird feeding so, is mostly for us. You yeah, know, it's for our enjoyment. Yeah. And it's That's always true. important to point out that keeping your feeders clean is important because they can be a disease vector as well. You yeah. can spread diseases at the feeders, so keep them clean. Yep. Well, I want to talk about another, well, uh, other reasons why bird population might go up or down. And one is there's just an article, now we're, we're headquartered here in the South, uh, Harrisburg area, and in the Susquehanna there's been some concern about fish that are showing different growths or abnormalities. Yeah, there's health issues with fish, yeah. And there are birds that eat the fish. That's right. Are some of those problems showing up, like pollution causing uh, causes in Well, you know, the, the bigger picture with fish-eating birds is a long-standing improvement of water quality. And again, like we're talking about, thinking about long-term, 100 years, uh, the forests are in better shape than they had been 100 years ago, and so is the water quality. Now, that's not to say there aren't issues, and the, the challenges with bass right now that Fish and Boat Commission is dealing with it really should be an alarm. You know, there's diseases showing up in what would be common fish species. Uh, we haven't seen that affect bird populations yet, I would say. Generally speaking, the fish-eating birds, the herons we mentioned, common merganser, um, the cormorant, which is also there, uh, they're all, they've all expanded and recovered. 
maybe 20 years from now when we do the third atlas, there'll be a different story. We don't know. Now, another bird that you see a lot on the Susquehanna around here that seems to be scarce other places is the great heron, the white one. The great oh, egret. Yes. Egret, yes. sorry, yes. the proper great name. Yep. 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 And um, you have under the double-crested cormorant a uh, competition for nesting trees and sites where the double-crested cormorant has invaded breeding colonies of water species at risk or uh, listed as endangered or threatened, such as Wade Island in Harrisburg. Yep. And there was a story about that recently, and it was the egrets that were being mm -hmm. chased Absolutely. away by the mm -hmm. cormorants. How often do you see that, where different species are competing for space? Pretty often when, it's a, when, it, when the nesting requirements are as, as sort of restrictive as they are for, for the colonial nesting waterbirds. Very few uh, suitable nesting sites, and so yeah, that's it's intense competition in those situations. So, so they they like to have nesting sites that are secure from predation. So, they they're tree nesting birds. So there are only a handful of large islands with uh, lots of trees, and uh, we don't have those predators on in Pennsylvania. So it's a scarce habitat. So, so there's times when when the game commission pipes in and then sticks up for one side versus another in one you know, of those? You're suggesting we're drawing sides, and actually <laughs> sometimes we have to do that. You know, the great egret has been listed as a state-threatened bird for quite a few years, and so we have an interest. And the only place the largest population of egrets in the whole state is there at Wade Island here in Harrisburg. So we have an interest in protecting and securing that location. Uh, the colonial nesting situation is somewhat unusual, though. I mean, there aren't any other groups of birds that nest across multiple species in that one concentrated area. So the egret and the cormorant and black crown yeah, you, you, you might find some similar situations on, on some of the beaches. There are some beach mm. nesting birds that are very, you know, where you know, a good nesting territory on a, on, a, on a beach in Pennsylvania would be, you know, would be greatly uh, contested uh, by both people, other animals, and, and the birds that need them. And that's um, Prescott State Park Prescott in Pennsylvania. State Park is what yeah. I'm alluding to, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's relatively rare. It's a species that have fairly strict nesting requirements, and that includes cavity nesters. Mm. Um, people put up, in addition to bird feeders, they often put bird houses up to attract birds, and uh, uh, there are many species of birds that nest in holes in trees, cavities, um, but they can't ex excavate those cavities themselves. So they require what they're what, are what we call secondary cavity nesters. They have to find a hole that's already been made by a woodpecker, for example, which is very good at making its own cavity. And those sorts of things can be in fairly short supply. So you can get a lot of competition over a nest box. Maybe a, a bluebird shows some initial interest and then the tree swallow comes in and they start taking over and the last bird mm -hmm. in might be a house sparrow or a house wren. Uh, mm -hmm. So yes, there's an awful lot of competition for nesting sites. Are, are cormorants good or bad? That's we, a wouldn't, we wouldn't make those judgments. They're native birds to North America, yeah. so they're protected in, in many yeah. ways like any other bird is. It, it's a very challenging situation because they're expanding and doing really well um, mm. at the same time that great egrets and some of our other rare species like black-crowned night herons are just barely holding on. It's a really tough mm. situation. You want to protect those settings where you have a, a good historic population of some threatened or endangered uh, colonial water birds and you have a, a species that doesn't need our help, I and mean, those birds need our help, mm -hmm. this other one doesn't really need our help, mm -hmm. it's expanding on its, of its mm -hmm. own accord, it's, it's a tricky situation. But, you know, it's a challenge for an organization like the Game Commission, which ha has, to, has to protect these threatened birds. It's part of its charge. It's our mission. And I think it's dangerous to label birds as bad as well. I mean, in certain situations it might be bad, uh, you know, it might cause problems, should I say. 
Um, but that's how we've got into some real problems historically where certain birds, especially birds of prey or fish-eating mm. birds, have oh, become yeah. really heavily persecuted because they're labelled as bad. You know, right. Anything with a hooked beak or, right. or talons is labelled bad and then they get shot that's are right. poisoned right. indiscriminately. So, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's an individual, point. you know, you've got to take things on an individual case-by-case -case basis, I think, in terms of managing them. Andrew, uh, this may be in your neck of the woods, but at least closer to where you're from. I was in the, the Baltics a couple of years ago, oh, yeah, yeah. and they had a, an influx of cormorants, and mm -hmm. they had eaten all the leaves off all the trees, and the trees were just stripped bare. Mm. Is that... Um, is this the same type of cormorant? That, that would be a different species, but that species is also found in North America. It's called the great cormorant here. Um, eating leaves, maybe the, the guano um, kill the trees, mm. kill the leaves or something. So they're actually fish eaters. They mm. almost exclusively or fish. Nest or nest material. Yeah, nest material, yeah. The guano yeah. is a problem. And that's actually one of the indirect difficulties at the Wade Island is the the uh, cormorant uh, excrement is uh, is uh, very acidic and it's killing the trees and it's so it's they're sort of ruining yeah. the habitat for themselves yeah. ultimately as well as for all the other species. So some birds destroy their own environment and, and move, move on. on. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about um, uh, predator birds or the, the the vultures and the hawks and mm -hmm. how are they doing in Pennsylvania? It's something of a mixed story, really. I think, generally speaking, again, the, the story's pretty positive. Uh, a lot of these birds, as I mentioned before, have been persecuted, especially through the late 19th, early 20th century. There's pretty indiscriminate um, persecution. So they're still, uh, some of them are still rebounding from that. Um, but there's a few other species that are maybe not doing quite so well. So there's one bird called a broad-winged hawk, which is found in the forest. It's a real forest specialist. And Pennsylvania supports a good population, this bird still. But it's, you know, the, the atlas shows it's starting to maybe decline in some parts of the state. And that pattern, it, again, linking in with some of these surrounding states, it's very interesting that um, a very similar story was shown in, in Maryland. Um, so in the, the areas uh, where there's a lot of suburban growth in Maryland, a lot of sort of the woodlots have been maybe nibbled away or lost, that, that some of those species, like the broadwing hawk, has been lost from some of those areas. But, but, and just to echo what Andy said, there are a lot of positive stories. The bald eagle went from, I think, about a dozen confirmed nesting pairs during the first atlas 20 years ago to over 150. Oh, well, now it's got over 250, right? over yeah. 200 yeah. In, yeah. in just that span of time. Yeah. Um, similar story for osprey, similar story for peregrine falcon, just a few pairs up to a great many more. Mm -hmm. um, We've seen, it, seen a, as well. Coop, we've seen a phenomenon called sort of the urban raptor phenomenon, <laughs> where species like Cooper's hawk, which is a um, it's it's quote unquote bird eating hawk. It's an excipiter. It's not the one you see making lazy circles in the sky. That's the red-tailed hawk. It's a, mm. in the genus Budio. Um, but the the Cooper's hawk has uh, again, without any uh, effort on our part, has adjusted, if you will, mm -hmm. to uh, to uh, human. Um, uh, modified habitats and has moved into the suburbs and um, of course in, in part potentially attracted to a good uh, reliable food source mm. in, in, in terms of small birds coming to people's bird feeders but in any event um, throughout the world actually there has been an increase of birds in in areas where human uh, habitations are and uh, another species that's done this this is really a surprise in the second atlas was a, a falcon called the merlin is a small uh, falcon which has actually moved into towns. It, all of the nesting records, I believe, in the state mm -hmm. were in towns. 
if I see the, the numbers right, was it the Merlin that went from zero to yes. zero to thirteen? Correct. Yeah. Locations. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. A when, new discovery, you might say, yep. yeah, as a breeding bird. When when species expand or grow, or there are healthy populations like the bald eagle, or you mentioned um, the the uh, osprey, mm -hmm. is that through the the good graces of the game commission? Or are they doing that on their own? Like you know, bald as, eagles as in Bob, particular. As, as Bob alluded, uh, sometimes it's because of uh, recovering habitats or recovering historical perspectives. There are particular cases like bald eagle and peregrine falcon and osprey where. The, the Game Commission, as well as other partners, Audubon and others, got together and, and specifically made efforts to recover those. Mm -hmm. um, but the, many of the changes, both pos well, positive changes, came about through you know, acclimation to man. Well, I think some of that um, urban or suburban raptor situation is people are more respectful of wildlife now than they may have been years ago, and, and so they're not getting shot quite As frankly. Andy said, yeah. they're not being persecuted. They're not poison. being persecuted in the same that way. That makes a big difference. Yeah. So they can survive closer to us, and that includes other birds you might not think of, like pileated woodpecker, you know, yeah. is a big Such woodpecker, and but now it's in many suburban areas where you have big trees. Right. So, and it would have been thought of as sort of a deep woods bird and right. you know, classically in Pennsylvania, just like the, the common raven that Andy mentioned, which was nearly um, extirpated from Pennsylvania, you know, at the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the ornithologists of the day just said it's down to the last remnants mm -hmm. in, the, in the few remote remaining forest stands in the state and it's as good as gone. And again, no intervention, no, no, no management, hands-on management by anybody. And this bird's population has expanded greatly to where it now, you know, nests in all kinds of interesting locations, not just remote cliff nests, you know, in the Seven Mountains region of Pennsylvania, but on, on the, uh, the framework of Beaver Stadium and State College, right. and, you know, and, and I've seen yeah. them nesting on billboards along the, uh, along the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So, you know, we can't always predict. I mean, some mm. birds seem to have this inherent ability uh, to, mm. to adapt, but again, and it, it, the key thing is we just have to make sure as, as, a, as a species we do not uh, persecute, um, you know, har directly harm, you know, you know, knowingly or even uh, maybe Indirectly. after the fact, once we know that we've done something that's causing harm to the ecology uh, of our world. And, and as indicated oftentimes in the loss of birds, we've got to be very careful about that. And one thing that, that we need to mention is, is the DDT era. So many of the raptors that were, you know, a mm -hmm. big part of the problem in addition to persecution was they, their reproduction went down to practically zero and we were losing all of the breeding adults by attrition as they just you know reached old age died and, and hadn't reproduced successfully for decades um, had we not uh, heeded the alarm you know of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring um, there's every chance that uh, a number of species would have been lost forever you know while <clears throat> it's really good to note that many species have adapted to us it is also it's probably important to remember that there are many species with habitat requirements um, and sensitive to disturbance that really are not going to survive well around people. A lot mm -hmm. of the forest interior birds and things of that sort, you know, where forest is broken up into, into segments, um, they're just not going to do as well there for a variety of reasons. So many species are adapting to us, but there are many that are, yet, are not yet as well. Is, is Pennsylvania's area of wooded land diminishing? Well, actually, in about in the middle of the second atlas, Pennsylvania hit the peak of forest extent and that is beginning to turn the tide. So in other words, as we said many times, 100, 100 years, forest has expanded. It's gotten older and more extensive. Um, but because of suburbanization and because of other land use practices, the area of Pennsylvania's forest is beginning, just beginning to decline. So we've turned, you know, Penn's Woods has kind of hit its greatest extent during this project, and, and it's just beginning to turn the other way. 
Now, Dan, you mentioned a peregrine falcon, and uh, every year there's a, a peregrine falcon that nests on uh, the Rachel, the Carson, Rachel Carson building, building in yeah. Harrisburg, mm -hmm. and they have a webcam sure. yes. for it. First of all, is it the same bird every year? Same pair. Well, I mean, there's over a period probably of time. been some changes. There's there have some been some divorces changes. and some, <laughs> and some yeah. other going Replacements. on. Was that couple encouraged to be there in the first place? Was that like a seed uh, planted? I, I, have, I have had some personal involvement <laughs> with that over many years. So peregrines, I did some work with the peregrines over the years. But the long story short is, uh, yeah, the nest box, a, a tray, was placed on a particular ledge on the Rachel Carson building with the hopes that Peregrine would find it. And that, that previous winter, they, uh, they did, and they've been nesting there ever since. And not the same pair. There's been some turnover yeah. over the 15 years that they've been there. Now, there, if, uh, if one follows it in the paper, there's a, a daily report on the oh. eggs hatching and the babies and mm -hmm. the babies learning to fly. It's but an internet sensation. <laughs> there seems to be a pretty high mortality rate among the babies, though. That, that would be normal in wildlife. You know, the first um, few weeks of any wild animal's life is the most dangerous as they learn. The survivorship isn't lower than you'd expect at that site. So, and they, they've produced quite a few young over the years, and it's been a very successful location. One of, the, one of the things with um, birds moving into uh, urban settings um, is uh, particularly the window glass. There's an, mm -hmm. And, and I, I suspect that a great many of the, of the deaths of, of recently fledged peregrines comes yeah. as a result of collision That's with reflective right. window glass. Um, and so there, but there are people working on ways that we can, you know, we can retrofit buildings to, mm -hmm. to propose less of a threat uh, in that regard. Um, and some cities have even introduced some um, uh, components of um, some some window glass recommendations for getting uh, the lead the lead rating for um, uh, which is something desirable for a lot of uh, architects and, and builders now. So I think we're we, we're beginning to understand that these are problems. It's kind of a double-edged sword. The city has a lot of a lot of uh, prey for a peregrine falcon, mm -hmm. uh, but it does have some hazards that it wouldn't mm -hmm. find in its normal environment. It, again, these nested on cliffs. Um, along our major ridge, river valleys. So a, a skyscraper, a tall building, is a perfectly good cliff, um, but all of that, all of that other uh, window glass, and that was never in the natural environment for the species, but they, they do, do you know, manage to do extremely well. And if you can identify a, a problem uh, site where you're having like multiple collisions, for example, you would want to try to address that. What do they eat? Whatever they can catch. Any bird. Any bird. Much smaller they than themselves, birds. yeah. They're not after squirrels. They're after birds from, from maybe starling-sized birds up to good-sized ducks. So they fast, used to be called duck hawk. Yeah, the fastest moving animal on Earth, as far as we know. You know, they, they, the stoop speed has been recorded at, what, 180 miles an hour? Or something close to like 200 that? miles an hour. Yeah, the yeah. stoop, meaning when they dive. When they when see they the thing on, and they close yeah. their wings and they rocket down at it, and then they just hit it and that's that's it and yep. then they just incredible birds right here in Harrisburg amazing yep, right? yep. And, and Pittsburgh yep. as well Pittsburgh where, where, too, I, yeah. where and I Philadelphia work. And, uh, we yep. have several pairs and, it, and you can drive to work and, and see a peregrine right. uh, you know out of your corner of your eye uh, mm -hmm. hunting something over the river well on, on the uh, the other end of the peregrine falcon story is the, the rock <laughs> pigeon <laughs> there which you uh, go. is one peregrine of them that they feast food. on Absolutely. periodically and they thrive in cities yes. are there are they among the nuisance birds I don't think they really cause any problems for other birds, really. I don't think there's really much in the way of evidence that they're out competing of other yeah. birds. Well, but there is a nuisance component but to pigeons. Yes. Oh, oh, but, but pigeons obviously do create a lot of problems. If you're sat on a park bench um, in Philadelphia, you might have run into some of the, the problems that pigeons create. So, and so building, there are nuisances. Building management, too. You yeah. know, the droppings can be yeah. pretty um, yeah. destructive, corrosive yeah. to building structures. But That's not, but not for birds. No, they're, yeah. really not, right. they're really not occupying a, right. a niche that's uh, excluding any native birds and they're not directly harming any native birds and they do 
frankly, provide a lot of food for our, our growing urban peregrine <laughs> population. So. Right. Yeah. Does the Game Commission ever get involved with saying there's too many of these birds here, let's remove some of them? No, no. Rare, rarely are you in a situation like that. I mean, there's, um, you know, it's a native bird and, and there's a lot of natural forces. Like we said, there's a lot of predators that are eating rock pigeons. So well, rock pigeons aren't a native bird, though. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's, mm. Oh, where are yeah. they from? Yeah, they're from Europe. Yeah, Eurasia. Yeah. One of a few reintroduced. They and the house sparrow and the starling are, are, uh, are the principal Eurasian introduced species. Mm -hmm. and Ring neck pheasant to a degree. Okay. What are the birds that the farmers just hate? Don't they, know. The starlings, pro <laughs> probably. I mean, the starlings do, you know, take grain out of feed feed areas. So, mm -hmm. and that's a non-native bird as well, and that does create some agricultural problems. But you know problems. what? They eat a ton of insects. I can't imagine that they're not that that doesn't balance. I think farmers are pretty. Black I don't know that farmers. Too, you know, red and blackbirds are uh, they can mass into huge flocks. I think just recently someone reported a, a blackbird flock of a million, million. millions yeah, yeah. of birds in Philadelphia, Lancaster. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lancaster County. I think it was. Four yellow-headed blackbirds. Yeah. <laughs> so the, they are controlled in yeah. some some parts of, of yeah. the U.S. But I don't so. think I think typically farmers, you know, if there's any disdain for any category of birds, it's it's often you know maybe a raptor, maybe a, a hawk that might be if especially they have poultry or something like right. that. But I really yeah. don't think. I, and and here's the other thing during this atlas, we we really uh, uh, invited farmers across Pennsylvania to participate because if you go and talk to farmers in Pennsylvania, um, they may not self-identify as a bird watcher, but you find out in talking to them that they know their their natural the natural world around them tremendously well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've met some wonderful farmers who could tell me amazing amounts of information about the birds uh, on their farm. And indeed, uh, farmed uh, uh, ground in Pennsylvania is the habitat for a number of species um, that really depend on uh, a sensibly uh, uh, used yeah, farmland uh, to, to survive in the state of Pennsylvania. It's probably not fair to ask you intimate details about a randomly selected bird. Oh, go for it. It's fun. pretty knowledgeable, yeah. Okay. there's. Um, the one that caught my eye was a morning warbler mm -hmm. whose Latin name is Geothippius. Geothlippus. Geothlippus philadelphia. Yeah. And I noticed there's it's none in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> good, good catch. Good yep. catch, Brian. Yep. <laughs> yep. So tell the, tell the story of the scientific name. Yeah, so, so scientific names of birds are, are somewhat um, happenstance. It has to do with where the first, they're often named for where the first specimen was ever collected and described. So Alexander Wilson presumably was the, was the gentleman responsible for collecting a migrant uh, bird uh, in the Philadelphia region uh, that was identified then as, a, as the species uh, morning warbler and given, that, and given the scientific name right, that, right. that, that, that uh, kept the place of its original di uh, discovery uh, as, part of its, uh, as part of its name. Well, since you put up the challenge, let's try another one. Ooh. Oh, the American kestrel. That's probably pretty easy. No, Who wants to one. take on the American kestrel? What do you want to know? Falco sparvarius. That's a good one. That's a farm. That's a something of a farmland yeah, bird. I mean, and Andy's a bit of a I mean, that's expert. that's a, that's a, another interesting story. You mentioned raptors earlier, and most of them are doing pretty well in Pennsylvania. That, that is one exception. Um, so that's uh, among this suite of farmland birds that are probably losing out a little bit as we. Uh, manage our farmland more intensively. You know, we're putting on more herbicides, pesticides, more mechanization. So there's a, a, a few species losing out, and that's probably one of them. And here's another one you have in here. The golden-winged warbler is down about 80 percent from mm -hmm. volume It's one, one of the big two. conservation topics of the day. It's it throughout is, the Northeast. Yeah, right. it costs its whole range, and it, it uses what's being referred to as young forest habitat. 
So, you know, after timber management, you start getting regrowth of forest. Well, there's a particular stage there in which quite a variety of species really specialize, including the morning warbler we just talked about. Um, so the golden wing is one of the target birds um, in which that young forest habitat is being focused on, and there's being habitat work being done to try to promote that. Is there any thinking that, well, this diminishing number is just the way of nature, and species come and species go, and just let it let them go if that's if, if it's their You know, topic. often, uh, yeah, oftentimes that is the reality because we can't affect Pennsylvania's landscapes as much as we might like to, and we don't always choose winners and losers because you know you, that is the result sometimes, but. Um, the golden wing is a good example in which a number of other species, including American woodcock, use similar habitats. And we would like to promote that habitat for woodcocks because it's a popular game bird. So the multiple benefits then we would target and, and, and promote. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that the humans are part of the, of the, of the same world that these birds inhabit. And uh, um, so that we, we, we have to and we're, we're knowledgeable, you know, about, mm -hmm. about how these birds relate to their environment. So we can look at our bird life and say, golden warblers, we know they need this, and we only have so much of this in the state. And is it important to maintain this? Does Pennsylvania have the largest mm -hmm. percentage of the global population of that species? Should we, you know, on the basis of that reason that we have a high responsibility, mm -hmm. should we perhaps, you know, strive to, to manage, to make sure that we always maintain that uh, that habitat in sufficient um, uh, extent to keep a, a support, a viable population of the species. Are there, are there species of birds where most of them are here in Pennsylvania? Yes, yes, a few. A few, yeah. yeah. Most birds have pretty wide ranges, right. and golden wing warbler is an example. You know, it has a pretty wide range, but Pennsylvania is a significant player for the species. Um, we talk about no, scarlet tanagers as well. Tanager, not a majority like greater than 50%, but right. But I think that scarlet tanager Maybe which a fifth is, of the has, has, has upwards of a fifth, and it has certainly for any state, and again, political, political boundaries are not necessarily the most relevant thing, but the scarlet tanager has, or mm -hmm. Pennsylvania has the highest percentage of the estimated population of scarlet oh, tanagers in the world. I want to read the, the first uh, sentence in the scarlet tanager chapter, and it says, there are few birds like the scarlet tanager which will make you hold your breath and say wow every time you see one. That's true. Isn't that exactly. great? It's a spectacular yeah. bird. And yeah. common in Pennsylvania. That's a, a beautiful thing about it. If, if Pennsylvania were to have a, a state songbird, I think many of us would vote for the Scarlet Tanager as, as Pennsylvania's state songbird to go along with the rough grouse. It's just a yeah. signature yeah. Yeah. bird of Pennsylvania forests. Now, if someone is watching this and they've never really spent much time thinking about bird watching or, or paying attention to them, how should they start? Well, you know, you've got to get a simple field guide. And, you know, we could promote a whole range of them. Peterson, you know, the Peterson series is a long-standing staple. National Geographic has a great one. David Sibley has a great field guide. But, you know, just to understand what the player, who the players are in terms of species, that's a good place to start. And, and a bird club, and a local bird mm -hmm. club, um, whether it's a junior bird club at a school-based mm -hmm. or whether it's one of the community-based Audubon or other bird clubs, um, that's a terrific place. You know, I certainly... Um, I certainly developed my interest initially just through flipping through some books and, mm -hmm. and, and seeing what was coming to the birds that my mother fed in the backyard. But once I uh, became a member of the local Audubon Society and began reading more about what other people were seeing and doing, uh, that reinforced my initial interest and it just sort of went from there. So going out, you know, and the bird clubs have, have walks, often family-friendly walks. I actually uh, now currently work as an ornithologist for the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania. I'm no longer uh, at the National Aviary, which, as you had, had said at the outset, I was when I was working on uh, much of the book project. 
Um, but in any case, at the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, we have a, a, a facility called Beechwood Farms, and there are trails, and we have uh, you know family bird walks and all kinds of events, and, and those are those. That's the way to go. And there's a big thrust these days, and I'm a big proponent of it um, for youth birding. Mm. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you have the the little old lady in tennis shoes vision of, of what bird watchers are, and that's completely incorrect. Believe me, it's a, a male-dominated mm. uh, activity for one thing. But in any event. Um, Often you'll see that it's it's too many adults and not enough young people, and there's been a real push, especially out east in in, uh, in the Philadelphia area, a big push to promote youth birding. Also in uh, in uh, uh, parts of Ohio, there's a good Ohio youth birding network, and I love to see that. And I've taken lots of kids out on bird walks and put binoculars in their hands for the first time and give them some simple instructions how to use it. And next thing you know, you know you just, you'll see something like a scarlet tanager if you get a few kids out and get an eyeful of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty much fun. I mean, it's. Uh, it's stimulating. It's a, it, it stimulates the senses, so it's mm. almost as good as a video game, really. There's, there's sound and there's, and there's, you know, things move around and, and, and it's not easy. It's hard. You know, you have to have some skill. Mm -hmm. It's all right. Do, do you each have some favorite spots to go to look for birds? I, we, a lot of us have our favorite places. Often, and often, interestingly enough, it's near near where we live because we can ac access it. And some of the, the north woods of Lycoming County is a favorite place for me. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I'm at Gettysburg College tonight, so I'm right by the battlefield, and it's amazing what you can see on the battlefield. You know, lots of people are, are driving around there on the auto tour, seeing all the monuments, etc. Uh, um, they're probably not paying much attention to the wildlife, but it's a, it's a national park. It's also managed partly for wildlife, and it has some really cool birds there. I spent uh, almost 30 years working for Carnegie Museum at uh, Powder Mill Nature Reserve in the Laurel Highlands of southwestern Pennsylvania. So I'd have to say the mountains of southwestern mm -hmm. Pennsylvania are my favorite. Um, Andrew, uh, from your, your native land, uh, are there many birds that are exactly the same as in Pennsylvania and some that are just totally different, unlike anything here? Yeah, the, the diversity is um, higher here, so there are more birds. If you go to the woods in Pennsylvania, you'll see it at a larger range of species than you do back in the UK, which has made it very exciting for me to move here. But there's a few species that are found there and here. Uh, the, the barn swallow that you see, you know, that nests in most farmyards in, in farm buildings, that's one. There are a number of species. The Canada goose we now have in the UK because someone <coughs> took them there a couple of hundred years ago. So we, we're sharing a few, few birds. We now have the, the house sparrow and the rock pigeon and the starling. And they, they took the, the Canada goose. So. The vast majority of species are different, though, aren't they? Yeah, the, yeah, the vast majority. No. There's a handful. I mean, the ducks, a lot of the ducks, are, are, uh, there's a lot of overlap. Barn owls, owls yeah. goshawks. Yeah, so there's a few. But um, for, for me, that was one of the really exciting things about this project, moving to a new area and suddenly a whole range of new species. You really Very cannot beat the, the, the Appalachian Mountains, mm. uh, and especially sort of the, the mid-Appalachians, right where Pennsylvania is, um, are about as rich, in, in especially for some groups of birds like wood warblers, which are some of the more colorful mm. and songful birds that we have. And it just turns out that um, there's been a lot of um, there was a, sort of a great diversification of warblers in, in eastern North America, and we're, we're just geographically positioned and have high enough ridges that we capture a significant number of the sort of quote-unquote boreal or 
more generally northern nesting warblers, and an awful lot of the southern ones come up into the valleys and just make it up into Pennsylvania. So that we get kind of get, get these both. two mm -hmm. these two faunas uh, coming together in Pennsylvania, and it really is tremendously rich. And uh, there are some odd juxtapositions of bird species. And I know Andy can probably give you a million examples, but you can go to a place in Pennsylvania and listen to something that's a quintessential. Canadian spruce forest bird, like a golden-crowned kinglet, and out of the other ear, you're listening to a quintessential southeastern river bottom bird, like a yellow-throated warbler. And there are all kinds of these these interesting, uh, you know, uh, occurrences throughout Pennsylvania. It really is a, a wonderful state for birds. Yeah. And you also uh, have some birds that thrive in marshland, like in the John Hines area outside mm -hmm. of Philadelphia or in northwestern Pennsylvania. Between yeah, those Meadville are the two main areas. areas. Yeah. And you really emphasize, there you go again, each species has its own habitat requirements. Some have very narrow requirements and some have broader. And typically those in wetlands situations um, have very specific fine requirements. They'll only be found in particular kind of marshes. Well, we only have about two minutes left, so let's try another one. The American bittern. That's okay. an excellent example. Let me yeah, just well, yeah, talking about wetlands, I mean, that's a bird that's, that's restricted to large, uh, large wetlands, lots of emergent vegetation, and it's getting to be a really rare bird in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really lost out since the last atlas. 48%. And the best place is Conneaut Marsh in, in Crawford County. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a very, very rare bird. We actually, in the second atlas, one of the things about some birds by their very nature, are more difficult to detect and require a bit of an extra effort or a special effort to detect and we actually so that decline is worse than it seems because mm -hmm. we actually made a greater effort a more organized effort to uh, survey wetlands mm -hmm. in the state of Pennsylvania compared to the first atlas um, in, in hoping to do a more thorough job of finding out where these rare wetland uh, species were and so even with that extra effort we still see a, a fi nearly 50 percent decline uh, in terms of the detection rate if we were to pick one group of species that's probably um, declined or struggling the most in Pennsylvania at the moment, it would be those uh, wetland, wetland species like the American bittern. They, there's a whole group of them that really seem to be um, declining pretty quickly, pretty alarming, um, some of them. Well, let me try one more, and I had this one marked because the colors are just so striking, the indigo bunting. Superb bird. Again, coming from the UK, there are, there are no birds in the UK that look anything like that. We have lots of lovely songbirds in the UK, but a lot of them are kind of little brown jobs. And to come to Pennsylvania and, and see them, this is a common bird. You can see it virtually anywhere where there's uh, forested edge and farmland, you know, a striking blue bird, beautiful mm -hmm. bird. Yep. Yeah, I have, you have fa a favorite bird? Uh, well, yeah, I've been waiting for you to get to mine. What's yours? <laughs> mm. <laughs> Louisiana water thrush, which is a fairly drab brown bird with some little streaks, but it, it lives in one of the, the Pennsylvania's best habitats, in my opinion, and that's rushing mountain streams. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's an obligate riparian forest nesting bird. So if you go to some of the most picturesque wooded streams in Pennsylvania in the spring and the summer, this is a, this is a signature bird. It lives right on the stream. It feeds on mayflies and stoneflies. It flies up into the, the eroded stream bank and tucks a nest in, the, in a little cavity in the stream bank and has a beautiful loud ringing song that you can even hear over the rushing water. So that's my favorite bird and I've spent about 15 years studying it. <laughs> we are out of time so we don't get to find oh. out who your favorite birds are. But we've been uh, speaking with Daniel Brauning. He's with the Pennsylvania State Game Commission and Robert Mulva-Hill with the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania. And that's a full-time job? Yes, sir. And Andrew Wilson, 
visiting assistant professor of environmental studies at Gettysburg College, and they are the author of this beautiful and massive book, Second Atlas of Breeding Birds in Pennsylvania. Yet very affordable. Go out and get it. Important yeah. to note. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.